the trilogy of mice work stems from a story that my father told me as a child many years ago and he'd tell me it at bedtime um, I'm not sure if it's a well-known fable or not but I never forget it and the story goes that there's an old lady who lives in a house and in the kitchen wall on the countertop there's a small hole uh, with some dust and some broken particles of the wall coming out and one day she comes down for a breakfast and sticking out of that hole is um, some money, a note. And she takes the money out of the wall and she feels totally blessed, like she's had some great luck or fortune. The next day she comes downstairs for breakfast again and there's more money sticking out the wall. She takes it again and this continues day after day. And day after day she manages to get free money from this mysterious um, and almost supernatural source. But of course, when she pulls down the wall, there's nothing there. There's no money, just some bare pipes. And the reason that the money kept uh, arriving was that there was a small mouse that lived in the attic. And in the attic, there was a suitcase that had been stuffed full of money, probably from some illicit activity. By a previous owner of the house and it had been left there and it had been forgotten and this little mouse that lived in the wall cavities and under the floorboards of the house could feel a draft coming from the kitchen where the hole was in the wall and so the mouse would get this thing that he just saw as being paper and carry it in his little mouth down through the wall cavity and into the kitchen wall and stuff it in the hole just with the objective really of plugging the gap so that there wasn't a breeze into his home. The mouse of course couldn't differentiate between money which is what the old lady saw and just a bit of paper. Effectively the mouse was gifting money unknowingly to the old lady and so the lady in all her superstition thought that it was because she'd been greedy that the money that she was being given every day had now disappeared. Now, it's interesting that the mouse thought the, of the money as paper. Effectively, if you look at things in terms of their materialism, money is just bits of paper. Things are only valuable because of the value that we assign to them. There's no intrinsic value to money. This story was really interesting because I saw this mouse a bit like my children. As I've grown up with them, I've got three kids, and as I grow up with them, I realise that the mistakes they make are far more objective and logical and with reason than the actuality of the world that grown-ups, so to speak, live in. And that many things that we believe and that we agree upon are completely ridiculous and intrinsically flawed like social acceleration like accelerated capitalism like our disrespect for the planet like um, our ability not to see that time has more value than money and that what we give our attention to and what we do with our time is a greater asset in our lives than how much wealth we earn. This story materialised itself in a artwork which is an installation of a small animatronic servo 
that holds some currency cash into a wall cavity down by the floor broken hole in the wall and it just sort of twitches and moves ever so slightly it's quite hard to discern the movement um and those that work is called i'm never coming back to antwerp again there's different variations of the work with different currencies and different places but the currency and the place never correspond with each other and i guess that that work is a work that challenges the spectator sort of unwittingly or accidentally questions not only our ethics and our morals that surround our right to or or lack of right to touch other people's property and to take things but also in the great institution of art in the context of a gallery or a museum what it is to touch artworks and to interact with them and to see artworks as natural signs that are part of the world rather than conventional signs that are part of the construct of the art establishment. A few years after making those works with the money, um, I was talking to my children and getting their perspective on what they thought the future might hold and this came about because I was reading a book that my dad had given me when I was a teenager which was by um, Alvin Toffler called Future Shock and I was rereading it it was a it was a book about future predictions for the world that was written in the 70s so reading it 50 years in the future was amazing because you could see if those project predictions had come true or not and I was talking to my kids about it and I thought it'd be interesting to ask them what they thought future predictions for in 50 years would be um, and it was almost like an epiphany to listen to them um, to listen to their childlike perspectives because the perspectives were based on not having any cultural or historical baggage or knowledge their perspectives were based on ingenuity and honesty um, and they weren't scared of sounding stupid or being wrong or incorrect. They spoke with confidence and they took risks in their predictions. This moment started a series of works that are now known as the Three Mice or the Prophets. The first of the this trilogy of mice works was a small... Uh, light brown animatronic mouse that had uh, broken through the wall at floor height it threw a little hole in the gallery wall surrounded by debris and delivered a speech uh, and my nine-year-old daughter Olive uh, used her voice repeated after me in a recording studio a script that I'd written so it's delivered by a young girl's voice as opposed to the voice of a mouse uh, and that work was called The 2000 Year Collaboration or The Prophet. And the speech um, was a speech that I rewrote taking an original script by Sir Charles Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, from his uh, film The Great Dictator from 1940. And it's the speech that's at the end of the film, the one where uh, Chaplin appears as a sort of dictator, somewhat like Hitler. But his character is based in a 
moral, ethical and positive uh, viewpoint rather than a negative one. Um, and I rewrote that speech from a sort of post simulacrum perspective. Now, when I say post simulacrum, what I mean is that I imagined a future in 50 years time where humankind had denounced technology and they put away their forms of um, uh, enhanced communication or digital communication and we've done away with accelerated capitalism and growth society and we live in a sort of mode of stasis which when you look at the history of humankind most of the great civilizations that have existed lived in a state of uh, stasis not a state of growth so the state that we're in now where the where the planet is being overwhelmed by population and need for resources is because we're in a sort of growth society or a growth economy where we always want more we always need more you know we only feel like we're being successful if uh, the amount that we earn increases every year um, and in ancient cultures and civilizations like if you look at aboriginal societies in Austral Asia they had 250 languages most of which now are extinct um, but none of those languages had a word for past present future or time those were civilizations that lived in a state of stasis where the objective was to survive and not get less and not get more so I wrote this this speech from that perspective a sort of after the simulation era and into an era of stasis. The second of the trilogy of mice was uh, also uh, narrated by Olive. She also did the voiceover for it, but of course she was a little bit older, maybe 10 or 11 by then. And the voice had changed quite a bit. Uh, so it was almost like this, this mouse was another perspective or another person. And it was a small white mouse this time. And the work was called I, I, I. And I, I, I came from a conversation that I had with Penelope, who's my youngest daughter, where her sort of mental and cognitive agility and imagination had developed uh, very quickly, but her capabilities of language at about age four or five hadn't caught up with that. So she was having very complex ideas, but struggling to find the words to communicate them. And because she was getting slightly frustrated with trying to uh, communicate these complex thoughts, she would often pause and get frustrated. It would end up with her uh, using the words I, 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 um, almost as if she was playing for time to try and find the right vocab to express the way she was feeling and what she was thinking about. The second mouse is a mouse which is quite telling of an era where everybody wants to tell a story and everybody wants attention and everybody wants to speak but most of the time people actually don't have anything to say. Of course this was the other way around with Penelope. She had lots to say but was struggling to find the words. This mouse for me is one that when I watch it now um, I feel a sort of sadness for the mouse in its struggle to find the words. 
The other thing about this mouse that I will say is it's quite interesting that you can spend so long watching a mouse that effectively tries to say something but says absolutely nothing. It's incredible how much attention can be commanded from such a small thing delivering no content. The third mouse is one that very strangely I finished just at the outbreak of the coronavirus and obviously I knew nothing about the the days that would follow. It's funny because some people refer to them as little prophets and they're meant to predict the future in some way or possible parapossible versions of what the future could hold but it wasn't made as a sort of coronavirus kind of diary or artwork at all when I was writing the script they had no idea of what was about to transpire but strangely the work encapsulates a moment in the history of humankind and predicts something and talks about something that affected and is affecting now every soul on the planet. The work is called The End so as a kind of apocalyptic undertone but when the mouse refers to the end in the speech it doesn't refer to the end of the world it just refers to uh, the inevitability of mo of mortality and the fact that we're all going to die and our acceptance of that is a very like healthy uh, thing that should be embraced and knowing the end and knowing that the end is inevitable gives us energy and optimism to make the most of the time and attention that we have. The end was um, narrated by Penelope, the youngest daughter, who the second one, I, 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 was about when she'd almost found her words and it's 17 minutes long, so it's by far the longest of the Three Mouse trilogy and it's also, I would say, the most um, complex in its subjects uh, and the most elaborately written. The text took me about three months to write of, uh, and it's compiled from lots of perspectives. This is a speech that really does sort of give advice, but advice from the perspective of a small animal. Humans and animals have two intrinsic differences, and one is to do with communication and our ability to record information but the other one is to do with our ability to imagine the future and remember the past which animals can't do so we can predict we can make imaginative daydream like predictions of moments in the future and this gives us the capability to be aspirational and to be ambitious and to encourage development which is also i would say the disease of western society because that's the thing that has enhanced acceleration and growth overwhelmingly. With this comes the curse, of course, of the end, uh, or our ability to predict the end or imagine our own demise or death, something that animals never do. There's that well-known fable of the little mouse who's spared by, spared by the hungry lion and later it saves the lion's life by gnawing through a net in which it's fallen. Which is interesting because the mouse is tiny and the lion is obviously very strong and large. And I love that perspective that in this era where 
there's a lot of noise and a lot of flashing and blinking and whirring and beeping and bright colours and shiny surfaces and reflections and a rainbow and array of colours and loud noises and whoops and bangs, all of which are aimed at commanding our attention. That actually you don't need to shout anymore that a whisper will suffice and sometimes a whisper commands greater attention because society has realised that the things that grab our attention are often the things that aren't valid and valuable information. There's another mouse in the history of art which is the mouse that Michelangelo failed to carve in Michelangelo's sculpture Four Times of Day that's in the Medici Chapel. He left a rock at the bottom uh, for a mouse that he was going to carve in and he never did carve it in and nobody knows why so there's just this little bit bit of rock that's left there. I think that's fascinating because when you think about the symbolism of a mouse some people think of mice as small cuddly graceful animals and you know in latin to be called a little mouse is a term of endearment but then we think of mice in some perspectives as being greedy uh, and foragers and stealing food and they're fond of the dark and they hide in corners and they scare people so culturally mice represent different sort of protagonists in stories but i think the most interesting thing about a mouse is that physically when it's used here in this trilogy in a gallery type setting is the unexpectedness of it one of the one of the qualities of this work for me still now when i see it is that you know having made it and having lived with it and having seen it many times is the fact that this tiny tiny creature can command an enormous space Often we go to an exhibition with expectations um, and to defy those expectations of the visitor and present them with something that they couldn't possibly have imagined is a blessing for me and like something that makes me incredibly satisfied to do. It's one of the like main objectives for me of making artworks. The mouse in this context defies the power of the context. For me, in this work, one of the greatest achievements of it is the way that it can command space. So this tiny animatronic mouse is always placed in a uh, very vast and empty, otherwise empty, gallery or museum type setting. And this plays with the expectation of the visitor. You know, when we go to a gallery or a museum, we go there thinking we know what we're going to see. And to defy that expectation and to to give a visitor, firstly, surprise, but secondly, a natural sign as opposed to a prescribed, tailored sign that's made to communicate, but one to give them a sign instead of that, to give them a sign that is part of the everyday fabric of the world and that is tiny and that can whisper but still command their attention and doesn't need to shout is uh, one of the, uh, an, well, an achievement that I'm incredibly excited by. And as predictors, as mini-prophets, as um, 
protagonists that speculate about a future the trilogy of mice they all talk about time uh, and time really feels to me like it is the subject of our time the art world is saturated with artworks and exhibitions about identity politics and about the internet and about things that are now but now is not the subject of now time and the future is the subject of our time time is all that we have left and attention is our greatest asset 